Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of ADV Moto Live. It's a chilly winter evening here on the East Coast. We've got some awesome stuff today. We have heard about it for years. A lot of us actually, when even even probably going back to the 70s and 80s, uh, had heard tales in America about this uh, mythological rally called the Dakar Rally. And to many, the Dakar Rally has been the apex of motorsports events. Riders and drivers from around the world consider even just finishing one of these epic races a dream come true and a true lifetime accomplishment. Even though their costs are high and people are pushed to their limits, why do they do it? What are the hardships and triumphs? What's it like to be there? All that and more on this episode of ADV Moto Live. Well, all right. It's been, I guess, one month since our last show. A whole lot of things have happened. I want to drop a quick note for those of you that may not have have heard. We've got uh, a new model of KLR that has come out to mixed reviews to everyone, but you can always find out more on that later. However, we've got a great show going on tonight. Like I said, on our 22nd show in, we've had a bunch of fantastic guests on ADV Moto Live. But once again, we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, and that is international rally racing. Some of you may not know, but uh, ADV Moto has been covering the Dakar Rally, uh, the Dakar and Rally Racing, longer than anyone in the United States, uh, going back to about 1999 or around 2000 or so. Every May issue, we focus on the astounding men and women who travel the world to compete in these grueling competitions, and I think that's probably one of the lightest things you could say about it. So tonight, we are joined by ADV Moto's co-managing editors, Kira Sakdalen and Justin Caffey, who covered this year's Dakar only one month ago. They were in Saudi Arabia. They have come back, and there's all kinds of things going on. In addition, we have a very special guest tonight um, who I'm sure everybody is uh, eager to see. He has not only finished the Dakar twice, but has also turned out some impressive times as a privateer, finishing both times in the top ten. After an amazing show in this year's Rally of Rallies and finishing fifth overall in bikes, which is friggin' amazing, everyone please welcome... Skyler House. <laughs> That's right. Big old laugh track. Double it. <laughs> Just so they, because they can't get enough. That's oh, all right. So, hey, how's it going, guys? Good. Hi. Good. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Skyler, nice to finally meet you here, if if not virtually. Hopefully, we have yeah. a nice to meet, meet you too. Sometime over there on the. On the West Coast, and of course, uh, everyone everyone knows Justin and Kiro. They they have been uh, co-managing editors for every matter. How long has it been? But it's not, is it quite a year? Almost, yeah, almost. I think <clears> in <throat> April, April or May. Mm-hmm. Well, April, May. All right, right. Well, what a lot of people might not realize is that you know, in the motorcycle world, lots of people do lots of things. So you know, they also do the co-managing editor work with us, but at the same time, they also have their own thing, West by One Thousand. And uh, man, they are some of the most rally photographing couples I know, probably in the U.S. I know there's a, there, there's a lot of crazy Europeans that love to do this. Oh yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah. and some South Americans too <laughs> as well. But out, out of the U.S., out of the U.S., I don't know if there's anyone that's covered as many. International rallies as as you guys. I mean, is there? Maybe not lately. Um, Maybe not lately. Yeah, not in the last few years yeah. for sure. But, I mean, yeah, there's mm-hmm. definitely people who are enthusiasts, and there's uh, this year. I feel like I saw more American journalists 
than ever before, even if that's like two others <laughs> besides us, but I'd say we're growing. Well, well, that's cool. That, that That's a topic I would like to touch on a little bit later. So if you guys could give, I mean, we've already had kind of a bit of a general introduction, but, you know, Skylar, man, could you just give us a little bit of background on, you know, who you are, um, what you do, you know, how you got into this in the first place? Uh, yeah, I'm just, I don't know, considering myself kind of just a kid that grew up in, in Utah and rode dirt bikes pretty much my whole life. My dad got me on a bike when I was just two years old, as soon as I could ride a bike without training wheels. And we always just did it for fun. But when a company, fast company, Flex Handlebars moved into uh, St. George, they talked me into racing the Nationals. Uh, the Heron Hounds. That got me hooked up with Chris Blaze. Chris uh, was, until just recently, the the last American to finish on the podium at Dakar. So I got to hear a lot of his stories. While I was racing on his team, <clears throat> I, we would always pit next to Factory KTM with Kurt Stelly. And that's right when he started his uh, rally deal. So um, yeah, I got to be kind of right in the middle of it, right in the mix of, of two of the best racers uh, America has seen as far as rally goes. Uh, it really got me fired up. And uh, later on, Ricky Brabeck got introduced. And at the time, me and Ricky were were battling it out um, in the Heron Hounds and other racing. So when he started going, I was like, man, this is actually something that's really possible. And then fast forward a few more years, uh, I got hooked up with Garrett Boucher, who at the time was, you know, super into rally and kind of made an agreement with him like, hey, look, I'd love to ride for you as a team if if you'd be interested in showing me the ropes to rally. And he got me interested or, or I guess uh, set up with everything. Uh, I went and did Sonora Rally. That was my very first ever rally and only like I think my second time looking at a road book. I was able to win that, which gave me the free entry fee uh, that gave me the Dakar Challenge win and the free entry fee for, for 2019 in Peru. That was my first Dakar, which was a learning experience to say the least. But fast forward to last year, uh, finishing in the top 10 and now this year finishing in the top five. It's kind of been a, a fast track process into the rally racing thing, but it's, I, it's something that I think I've been waiting for my whole life. Uh, this style of racing and man, I'm just having a blast with it. So what, you know, uh, draws you to international rally versus some of the other types of, you know, course based racing that we have in the U.S.? I think it's like the most raw form of racing that there is, you know, in just desert racing, you don't get to know the course, but everything's marked by ribbon and arrows. And chances are, if you're from the area, you've ridden all those trails before, you know, generally what to expect. Um, and there's a lot of rivalry and, and everyone's kind of out to get it, uh, each other and whatnot. So, um, in route or and in Baja too, you're allowed to pre-run the course. So you know what's coming up. Everyone goes down there and creates their little beelines, does their homework. So it's not really, you know, true raw racing. It, every aspect comes down to like, okay, who's putting in the homework here? Who's doing this here in rally? You get the road book right be the morning of. You don't get the, a chance to look at it anymore. And you've never ridden those trails before. And everyone's out there more or less on the same playing field. Like, yeah, for sure, people have uh, factory support, this and that, whatnot. But uh, for the most part, everyone is on the same playing field and on the same level. So it comes. it's not have about how fast you are. There's so much other aspects to it. You know, you have to be 
cool, calm, and collected. You have to be fast on the bike. You have to be able to navigate, you know, recover from your mistakes and, and then do that for 500 miles a day, every day for two weeks. So there's so much more to it. Plus, we get to see some pretty incredible places. I mean, Saudi is an amazing place, and I've been lucky enough to go kind of around the world and, and race in a bunch of different places. So it's, I think it's the complete package when it comes to off-road racing. Mm, that's interesting. So how would you compare, you know, South America to Saudi Arabia? Uh, there's one thing that South America has that I, I, I don't think can be topped. And if it can, it's going to be extremely difficult. And that's the fans. The people down in South America are diehard, incredibly dedicated fans. I mean, it's pretty insane to see that many people that are stoked about dirt bikes. I mean, we'd be riding through some crazy little town in Peru and like a old lady that can't even stand up gets like lifted up by her friends and is like jumping around to wave high at us as we come by. It's like, that's awesome. It's insane. Yeah. There's like 200,000 people there at the, at the start podium and everyone's trying to grab you and take selfies and it's just chaos. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And in Saudi, it's not as popular. So we get some fans out there, but it's like the very first year in, in Saudi, we showed up in Peru. You got 200,000 people just cheering and shouting. Everything's going crazy. You go to Saudi and there's like 12 people there that are like, so it's, <laughs> Half of them are picking their noses. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm not picking my nose. It's just an itch. <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely a different atmosphere in Saudi just because not an, as many people know about it. Um, mm. that, you know, but like I said, the, the people in South America are just, incredibly dedicated and really supportive fans so that's something that i miss about south america but the terrain in saudi arabia i love it and the the landscapes and everything that we got racing there i like racing in saudi arabia because it's very similar to where i'm from i like the high speeds i like the rocks i like the sand and the way the dunes work in saudi is a little bit more predictable they can kind of flow and it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of cool stuff to look at which you know, it's kind of nice when you're racing through a country, it's pretty cool to kind of sit back and be like, wow, this is, you know, this is pretty awesome. So Saudi, I think I like the racing in Saudi better, but yeah, South America, I I miss the fans for sure. Well, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, it it, it sounds like when you got 200,000 people there for a launch, man, I mean, that kind of love and energy, I mean, it's got to impact the overall experience, probably even the racing itself. You know, like when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're going through small towns or these villages or whatever, you know, and, and if, you know, if, if they have that energy, I could, I could only imagine that that would transfer to the, you know, to, to the people that are contending in it. Right. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Like in Peru, I, I wasn't able to finish. I dislocated my shoulder on the liaison. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, it, it happened right in front of a group of people. People picked me up, got me, you know, all brushed off, made sure I was okay. And the whole time this like little, teenage girl was filming it and somehow found me on social media and like sent me the video of me taking off after her family had just picked me up and picked up all the parts off the ground and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, how, how we're in the middle of nowhere. It looks like you guys barely have, you know, electricity. And yet you found me on social media somehow to send me this video. I it's They're wild. It's super cool. Well, that's awesome, man. And that is, that is full experience racing right there. Yeah. Not, not just the racing itself and the time it takes and all the organizing, but when you interact with your audience, that's a, that's a totally different, totally different level. And lots of rally racing is awesome like that. Even the cars too, like WRC, 
Everybody's mm-hmm. out there, you know, turning turning cars back over, pulling them off of, off of cliffs and berms and stuff. It's fantastic. So, Kieran, yeah. Justin, how did you guys get interested in covering rally racing? Oh man, <clears throat> we got a we got a phone call from from a guy named Ned Cease uh, in 2015. Yeah, 2015. Ned called and and asked if we would like to go to the Sardinia Rally and cover his his experience there for Cycle World and. Uh, we said yes. And yeah. really, I mean, I, I was familiar with Dakar. I've, I'd been familiar with it for a long time, but I didn't realize how many other rally races there were going on around the world, um, as part of the FIM championship. And so we, we went and arguably the, the, the Sardinia rally is like a pretty posh. It was a pretty yes. posh. It was very intimate yeah. compared to the Dakar rally. I mean, uh, Skylar, you might have experienced this in, uh, some of the Morocco rallies, but, it's just, it's, it's like you're rubbing shoulders with Mark Coma and you're, you're, you know, you're where it would be like 500 participants at Dakar. It's like 50 participants. Yeah. 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 And so it's, it was a different scale and maybe it kind of spoiled us because it was, you know, we're eating Italian food every day. We're on a beautiful island. We're really close to like superstar athletes. Um, but it kind of, I'd say that was the launching point and that's where it got us hooked. And, and so we've been chasing it pretty much ever since. Right yeah. on, right on. And you guys have been doing tops, tops job of it, you know? So, all right, Skylar, have you been in any other rallies and stuff besides the car? I know that you had sort of mentioned a couple of them, but are there, are there any of them that are kind of your, kind, kind of your favorites? Yeah. The Sonora rally every year is definitely my favorite. Um, it's my first ever rally, but it's, Kind of like how Kira just said that they get spoiled. Like Sonora Rally, I think is the most, it is the funnest terrain to race on. Their dunes there are huge, but they flow really good and they're really fun to ride. And then when we kind of run down the beach, we'll have these beach sections where we're right on the water for a while. And then they move us off and we go through these big twisty, sandy trails in between the giant cactuses and it's it's so sick and then every single bivouac is like right on the beach or somewhere super awesome we have local catering or just eating delicious you know ceviche and tacos and it's just so awesome it almost doesn't feel like a race and then everyone there is super cool too like my very first race i did there um garrett who was showing me the ropes he had a mechanical failure so the rest of the race i was racing against scotty bright um who's a legend and he more or less coached me the whole time while we're racing because I would be able to ride a section maybe faster and get out ahead and then I'd make a navigation mistake and he'd come up and be like, and he'd stop and he'd like point it out. Okay, this is why you made this. Thing. We're in the middle of the race and he's like coaching me on how to navigate better. Wow. So it was really fun. I mean, we're all competitors. We're all out there trying to win, but that's another reason why I love the sport of rallies because everyone's actually, you know, friends everyone liked having a good time together so sonora rally i pretty much try to do every single year um i did the baja rally which is fun and then uh in 2019 i got super fortunate enough to kind of travel around and do a a handful of other rallies so i did the morocco desert challenge i was able to win that that was my first like world event that i ever won um and i competed directly against Juan Pedrero, who's a insane i mean i think he was joking but i don't think he's actually joking i was we were at the finish line of Saudi this year and I was like, how many Dakars have you done? Like something like 15. And he's like, no, I think it's 14. And I think it's actually, he's actually done 14 Dakars or something. It's insane. Yeah. But 
same kind of thing too. Like he would help me out. We would make mistakes together. I learned the pace and just, you know, that was super awesome. And then I went to Greece. Greece is one of my favorite countries. The food there is amazing. It's one of my favorite parts of traveling is eating food. I just love food. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, unfortunately, I don't know what happened. Like I, I was pushing pretty hard because I was racing against Stefan Svitko, who's a total I mean, he's a gangster. So I was pretty confident on one day that I was going to make up a ton of time. And it was towards the end of the rally where it was going to be deciding on whether who's going to win or not. And uh, I was just, you know, I wasn't really like going over my head, but that year a ton of rain had happened. So I actually swung it wide and fell into a big rain rut and broke my neck. And that was three months before Dakar 2020. So, um, that was the last world event that I got to do other than, you know, Saudi and, and, and Sonora and that kind of stuff. Um, so 2019 was a, you know, super big year. I got to go to a, a lot of different places and whatnot. So far, Saudi has to be one of my favorite places to race. Sonora is my favorite race. Greece is like my favorite place to visit and, and ride. The riding there is pretty sick. Uh, but mostly because the food is super good. So yeah. Yeah, I've been pretty fortunate to be able to ride my dirt bike in a few different countries. Pretty cool. Well, that's awesome. Now, how about the um, you know the race that goes on the same time as Dakar? And I guess they claim it covers the old route, the Africa Eco Race. Mm-hmm. Do you ever plan to contend in that? I know that there would be a time conflict, or or is that kind of uh, not something that you'd be interested in? Is there a difference between the two? You know, what I mean, what are the main differences? I don't know. I think I'm always down to race no matter what. Uh, I'd be down to go race whatever you could throw at me. Uh, I just like riding my dirt bike more or less, but I think especially the time conflict. And then I don't know the the old, I, I got to ride it a little bit. It just in Morocco, the old um, Dakar course is a lot of high speed stuff and it goes through some pretty desolate areas. And especially from the stories that I heard from Chris and just that, that kind of racing down there is, is pretty intense because you're just, out there on your own. So I would love that aspect of like the adventure and just being out there on your own. You have to finish, you need to keep it out there on two wheels. I'm definitely down to race it, but I think at this point right now, it would be something that I would for sure have to do way later on in my life and career just because of the conflict with everything. Yeah. But I mean, it looks super fun and especially to race the old, the old course. The biggest thing I'm sketched about, about in Africa is like the food and water. I mean, like I said, my favorite part of traveling is the food. And when you can't eat it because you're scared of getting sick, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is, that is crazy. But I mean, the whole history of those, of those uh, men and women both doing the car. I mean, I can remember back, it was like, was it 07 when they canceled it? Like, uh, 08. Uh, was it, uh, eight and 08. then they, it, it, it was 08. It was 08. Like, I know it was, yeah, like I know it, it it was a while ago, but I just remember seeing the video footage of all these of all these guys lined up with and it, it looked like they were on the boat. I mean, it looked like they had gotten all their gear together and they were all lined up and they were ready to sail. And then it was just like, no, we're not going. And these guys are just, you know, breaking down. I mean, it was just like, you know, but do you think back to the whatever, like the 20 years before that or something, these guys were getting shot at, hitting landmines. I mean, you know, you guys with the dudes with SKSs out hiding out behind rocks, and, rocks and stuff. I mean, it was just some tremendous. I mean, it just just absolutely mind blowing stuff. I mean, I can definitely see why it would say, well, this is this is you know pushing the 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 risk 
over the top. But actually, at the same time, though, right, there was a lot of people this year, they were like, what's up with the tire rule? You know what I mean? You know, like with all the crashes and stuff like that, some people were were, were kind of speculating, you know, in, in the public, of course, you know, uh, we all know everything over here, right? But, you know, but, uh, you know, they were speculating that, that some of the injuries and stuff could have been avoided if the tire rule hadn't been so strict, especially, um, you know, like Toby Price and his and his kind of mythological zip tie fix. I mean, what's your take on that? What do you guys think? What do you guys think as journalists about this? I want to hear your uh, I, ideas first. Personally, I think it's part of a race's agenda or an organization's agenda to change rules or, or to modify them to both add safety and challenge and the balance is very difficult and you know you're trying something new every year and maybe it's not the best um solution for for that year but i understand what they were attempting to do with reducing the tire changes and that was to slow the racers down part of dakar isn't just you know going on the pipe uh full speed to the end you have to manage your tires you have to manage your bike you have to manage your body and their intention was to force the riders to be a little bit more conservative about how fast they're riding in certain areas. So because they have to maintain the integrity of their rear tire, whether that worked for everyone or not, I mean, you can't help that. You, it, I can't imagine. I don't know what, you know, Skylar would know better than I would, but uh, I can imagine being on the race course and it's really hard to not want to go full speed, go you know, give it your all when you have the opportunity and maybe the opportunity presents itself more often than not. And that can mean that you wear your tires down faster. So hear me out. That strategy there where you say, um, I could go fast, but I need to save your tires. That didn't happen. We just all pinned it. None of us, I don't think out there really cared about how wore out our tires got. I mean, to an aspect, I think it maybe if we're going through super gravelly stuff, we weren't just lit the whole time. But yeah, pretty much every day we just rode. And at the end of the day, we're like, Matt, well, that tire smoked. Only got one day out of that. Looks like we got to, I don't know. I like, like Kira said too, I think, yeah, we understand what they were trying to do. They're trying to make every day similar to a marathon stage. So you have to at least try to get two days out of the same tire. The problem is, and I've seen a video of me going through this, you know, just rock garden. It's like, okay, you need to make this la- this tire last two days. And then here they proceed to, to run us through 200 miles straight of nothing but rocks. There wasn't even dirt out there. It was only rocks. Shredding. Yeah, I mean, it's like shredding. rock and yeah, like gnarly, crazy sharp stuff. Yeah. You, there's only so much maintenance you can do for that. Yeah. It, it's almost like volcanic rock or something that real sharp. Oh, that rock again. It's crazy. I mean, we like to joke that the ASO likes to make every single aspect of Dakar as difficult as possible from I mean whether you're media or the riders just like making you walk half a mile just to go pee like <laughs> anything like just to add the challenge to the to the or the mystique of of the race yeah finding your lunch <laughs> finding your lunch bag is is part a, of the challenge is an obstacle course yeah. living off of Biscoff cookies for two days Oreos Oreos or Oreos. two and a half hours of sleep Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, we all saw Justin's famous Oreo Bandit video. <laughs> he got dangerous with a banana. That was yeah. awesome. We're trying to make this brought to you by Oreo here. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> some free plugs. But so, so then, then would you say, Skyler, man, you know that, like, you know that maybe they should have 
taken more of the course and the, and, and the, and the terrain into account when they decided on the numbers or, or do you think there was just someone that was making rules and then, and then there was, there was someone that was, you know, kind of charting the routes and they weren't really coordinating or thinking about the impact on them no, together or? I, I don't think they really put that much thought into it. I thought, I think they probably came down to like, all right, look, they can make one tire last for two days over the marathon stage. Why couldn't you do that for the whole race? And on paper, everyone goes slower during the marathon stage to conserve themselves. But there's a video of Sam Sunderland saying it perfectly. If you went slow enough to conserve your bike and your tires, you would be hours behind. Like you can't, you just have, you, you have to race. So I, I see on paper how it would look good, but we're racing like, you know, you, you can't expect us to go out there and be like, yeah, you know what? I could be going a hundred miles right now, a hundred miles an hour right now, but eh, maybe I'm going to go 40 to just <laughs> conserve my bike. We're not going to do that. It's not yeah. going to happen. Like we're out there trying to win. So I, I think what's important is I like a tire rule. So, uh, and everything that I'm saying too, if I was in the factory's position, I'd love it. So don't get me wrong that I'm like bashing on these guys because if I had, motorhomes to sleep in on the marathon stage and unlimited tires and just all that kind of stuff, I'd be stoked. So don't take that the wrong way. However, as coming from a privateer and knowing like the struggle side of it, you know, last year there was no tire rule. So we'd go, the bike gets fully prepped at the end of the day. You start the morning the next day at 4 a.m., whatever. You ride your liaison for three and a half hours. You get less than a kilometer from the, the start of the special and then you have a a factory sprinter van waiting for you that does a full complete service on your bike. And all you've done is just ride that down the highway. So you get to sit in the van, drink hot coffee or tea or whatever, get warmed back up while your bike gets fully prepped with brand new tires. You start the special with fresh tires and then you have a neutralization halfway through that's a service point also. So another factory sprinter van is sitting right there ready to do another full complete service on your bike. You get new tires halfway through the stage and then you go to the end of the stage and go back to the bivouac. So at the end of the day, you go, you just went through three tires for one day, which I, you know, last year I, I, we we're sitting at a neutralization. Every bike just comes rolling through and they all got fresh tires. I'm on roached tires. I'm like, man, this is awesome. Sitting here trying to battle in through the top 10. All these guys just showed up on fresh, fully serviced bikes. I'm like, oh, uh, okay. I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So it's an unfair kind of like advantage if you have that extra support, right? Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm saying. If I had that support, I'd be pumped. I'd be super stoked to have fresh tires. But coming from a privateer side and not getting that same treatment, I can understand the the difference in like, okay, this isn't really fair to some people. And, and that's like earlier what I was saying, how everyone's on the same playing field. I think that's what they're just trying. They're trying to make it more uh, of a less of advantage to be a, a factory rider. I mean, obviously you're going to have huge advantages with just money and, and the, the amount of parts that you have. It's a huge advantage to be a, a factory racer in the beginning, but what they're trying to do is just put everyone else, you know, so the little guy has more of a chance. Um, and it's making it more possible to go out there and, and it keeps the racing interesting. I mean, the racing was super interesting this year and I was racing. I mean, it, it was really, really fun for me to kind of get mixed up and there was so much different stuff and happening. All these riders are going from first place to 21st place and just there's so many things happening. And I got a lot of messages saying that it was really, really, really fun to watch this year because the racing was a lot more interesting. So. 
I mean, the tire rule, I think, is a good idea, but I think they need to bump it up to 11. So you have to you have to finish the day with whatever tire you started on, and then you have to make one tire last for the marathon stage. And I think that's fair. And I think that's safer because with the, the dangerous part, you know, for Toby's aspect, there's two ways of looking at it. If you have a tire that's about to fail like that, and then he has to ride almost an entire day on a rim, that's incredibly unsafe. But that's the marathon stage, so that didn't really matter. It, it didn't matter about the the tire rule and that. I mean, he was going to be stuck with that tire no matter what. Even if there, you could have had unlimited tires, mm. <clears throat> he, he was stuck with that tire. So it really didn't make a difference to tire rule because that happened on the marathon stage. You know, if it, if it, if that happened on say day, day like 10 and then he was forced, he, he was out of tires and he was forced to run that same tire on stage 11, that would have been incredibly unsafe because he had the opportunity to put a new tire on, but he was out of it or, or whatever. So. There's an unsafe way of looking at it because, you know, in my aspect, running a bald tire down a gravel dirt road in a rocky area, you can't stop. We're sitting there going, you know, 140 kilometers an hour down a down a dirt road, and then you start braking for a corner expecting the bike to hook up, and, and, and then you just keep sliding, and you just slide off the road. <clears throat> That's super unsafe. And if we have fresh tires that we're allowed to have every day, at least just one new tire per day, it's more of a chance for us to be able to stop and accelerate and control the bike better. Um, so I think it's safer to have, I, I think it's a good rule to have a tire rule, but make it 11 tires. Um, and then you, you just have to finish the, the stage on whatever tire you start on because what they're doing now is eliminating the, the, the water boy. So in the past, you used to have a, someone who would intentionally ride slower than the main guy. If the main guy had problems, that slower rider would come up give the faster rider whatever parts they needed so that faster rider had a better shot to win. And now you can't do that. All of your parts are marked to your bike. You can essentially stop and swap like a clutch lever or something like that. But, you know, wheels, any major part of the motorcycle that could really be a deciding factor in your finish, you can't swap them anymore, which is, you know, kind of cool. It brings more of that, like, all right, no matter who you are, you have to make sure you and your machine finish with your own parts so that's cool and i think a tire rule is necessary just because it puts it's the same as the roadbook deal now you everyone gets the roadbook 20 minutes before the stage starts everyone has to do you, you have to finish the stage on the on the tire you started on so i think that's important but the six tire rule i think was not safe yeah, it, it, it seems like it was pushing. We also have a question uh, from the audience, and that was uh, another thing this year was the mandatory airbags. What do you think about those? I mean, I think that airbags are probably an, a necessary uh, deal, uh, especially because a lot of us um, choose not to or can't wear neck braces, and just because it, it really prohibits movement, and movement is very important on a motorcycle. So the airbag actually has like a, a neck roll that it pops up and has like some a, a type of neck brace that is basically not there until you crash. So I think the, the airbag is necessary, but it was kind of annoying just because every time that mine went off, it was in a, <laughs> it was what? in an area that I, I really didn't want it to go off. And it just made the situation more difficult. Like I literally would just tip over in the sand and it would, and I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> trying to pick up my bike or whatever. <laughs> so, and, and the one that I was specifically wearing was really heavy. 
so, and it didn't breathe well. So I got really hot. It was a lot of weight on my body. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully they can work out the, I, I don't know how they're going to work out the al- algorithm to determine on whether or not like an impact or uh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Cause literally every time I'd just be like, Ooh, tip over. I'm like, oh, dang it. <laughs> Every time. Did you have to like poke yeah, a hole yeah, in it? Or did, how do you deflate it? What do you do? It, de- it deflates bit? automatically, but it takes like three minutes. So I'm sitting there trying to ride like this. Can't really move. <laughs> that took time off your days, but you could have been third place. <laughs> <laughs> it went off three three times total. One of them was the last day, and I was panicking on the last day too. So it was... <laughs> a little hectic at some time. So short, short. So. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was, and I, I missed the waypoint at the very beginning of the stage. So I was pushing harder than I've ever pushed before. And just literally the easiest little thing, I came around a corner and it was a really sharp corner and I just like high sided. So I, I was going super, super slow and I just kind of went and landed on my shoulder. And I was like, and <laughs> like the second I came off the bike and I'm like, F an airbag, don't do it. Hit the ground. <laughs> I'm like, no, airbag. <laughs> it reminds me of that kid. Have you seen, uh, is it a Christmas story? Ralphie? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, outfit? exactly. That's how I picture you. Exactly how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy stuff. So to get all of the, all of the Dakar kind of gossip you know, talk out of the way. What do you think was going on with that, uh, you know, the fuel gate? You know, Yamaha didn't have a very good year this year. You know, I guess they lost one or two of the bikes because of water in the gas. I mean, and to me, like, when I, when I, when I saw that and the dude held up a picture of the gas that was drained out of the bike and you could see that there was a certain amount of straight up water in there. I was like, how does that, how does that happen? I mean, I would think one of the things that would be pretty strictly controlled, uh, you know, out there would be, would be the gas. Well, one thing that was different this year, Saudi gets seven days of rain a year and we got what, three or four of them. It was, there was a lot of moisture. And even if it wasn't fully raining, it would be super foggy. Um, so there was just a lot of moisture in Saudi Arabia this year that I think they normally don't plan for. So, I mean, it is a lot. And what they ended up doing is, is, uh, you know, they had like a bucket there that they would intentionally just fill up before every rider would come. And then every single rider had to use the same pump because of that issue. And unfortunately it had to be Andrew Shore. I mean, Toby had the same issue. I had f- water in my fuel every single day. It, it, my mechanic would pull the tank off and I have foam in my tank and he would wring that foam out and there'd be at least like two or three ounces of water in that foam every day. And I got lucky enough that the only time I actually had a problem with it was on the liaison. So I was able to stop and drain the water out of my fuel on the liaison and make it in. So it really wasn't a huge deal for me. But someone like Andrew, who, you know, it's the first time this has ever happened. So he doesn't, doesn't really know what the issue is to begin with. Even if he did know, it was enough fuel that he probably would have ran out of gas. Yeah. Like, yeah. there was enough water in there taking up all that space. So it was like, dude, it's a huge problem. And it sucks so bad that, you know, that Andrew had to go out that way. But I mean, you know, seeing how, how everything else kind of played out, maybe it's kind of the, uh, the less of a gut punch to make it only a couple of days and have to go out with water in your fuel. And then like someone like Adrian who makes it to literally the last stage and isn't able to finish. So it's kind of a yeah bummer deal there. I think last year, Andrew, Andrew's bike had a mechanical problem, right? The engine was that it in 2020. No, Andrew, Andrew just had like Yamaha. 
No, Andrew last year was on Husqvarna. Oh, yeah. that's right. That's right. He changed over this year. That's right. Right. So, I mean, that kind of begs a question, and I don't know if there's anything too too top secret here, but, you know, you've had some really strong finishes. Are there any chances of, you know what I'm saying, going factory team, you know what I'm saying, you know, getting, you know, something you know, orange or white there, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Listen, all I can say is I really have my hopes high that I have a piece of paper on my desk that I can sign, but I don't have any information to share for you at this moment. That's cool, man. That's cool, man. Well, you know, of course, we wish you all the best for that because, uh, you know, I mean, really watching you race was was absolutely fantastic. Although, to, to be honest, everybody out there is a freaking hero to me personally. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, like especially um, – like the Malay Motos, yeah, you know, yeah, those dudes are gnarly. And you know, Kira, you know, like we had changed, you know, like swap message about, but is there anything we can do for some of the Malay Moto, uh, you know, r- r- racers to give them a little bit of spotlight? Uh, I don't, you know, w- whether it was just like a photo montage or collage in the, in, in the book or something like that. But I mean, their stories just sound so frigging incredible, man. I mean, they're like, are they beasts of motorcycling? You know what I mean, or what? I mean, they're masochists. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the people who like to feel pain every day. I mean, there's a story. Uh, a friend of ours who is also in the Malimoto class. Um, he like he even his story is interesting. He crashed out and he ended up coming back in the experience class. And still, after going to the hospital and and getting cleared, he came back and finished the race. And he said, "There's this one guy, and I think his nickname is like Red Lantern or something, something of that nature," because. He always came back at night and he's been wow. racing rallies for a long time, I guess. And he knows he's a slow guy. He knows that he's not like the most skilled, talented rider, but he puts himself through this hell like anyway. Um, and, uh, our friends, our friends said that he saw him one day like sitting in the lunchroom with his head down in like a rag or a towel, just sobbing. And it was probably a few days till the end. And he said that he was just so exhausted and so tired and worried about the next few days because from our friend's point of view, he said everyone else in that class, you know, no matter how hard the day was, every day they they know that the next day they might make it back while the sun's out and they might make it back with good time. There's a chance. And uh, this guy knows that Every single day, he will always make it back at night. It will, he'll always get less sleep than everyone else. He'll always have to do work on his bike and, and it's pain. And to like willingly continue to do that, even though you know you're going to like life is going to suck every day. It's, it's extremely, um, I would think very tasking, very daunting. <laughs> what do you think about that, Skylar? <laughs> Well, He's like, no factory, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take a I'll take a motorhome over a tent. Yeah. Um, I don't think they'll let me race Molly Moto because I'm an elite elite racer, so they won't actually let me do it now. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. There was a guy. So uh, the Boss Dakar team that I was on, they rent their bikes out also, and a uh, guy his he came from Botswana, and. His, like his story is actually, I think, the craziest one because he was pretty much dead last every day. He was last place, and when, honestly, I mean, it, <clears throat> James, if you're watching this, when we when you first showed up and we're talking about it and we're going over everything, we're like, man, if he makes it to rest day, we're going to be super impressed. Well, he not only made it to rest day, but he finished the race, and he rode 
I, so our total racing time was, you know, somewhere around 50 hours. His total racing time was 133 hours. Damn. <laughs> yeah. His, uh, <laughs> stages that took us four hours to finish, it took him 17 hours to finish. It was, was insane. Wow. And there was a couple days, uh, there was one day specifically that it was dark and the lat, the whole finish of the stage was in the dunes, big dunes too. And he had to ride all of these dunes in the dark, which is super, super sketchy because you can't actually see when the dune drops off. It, you can only see when you're going up into just blackness. And so he's trying to ride all these dunes at night. He's out of water. He's sweating like crazy because he's working so hard. He said he he crashed so many times that he finally said, all right, if I crash one more time, I'm uh, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to stop here. And then he would crash again and pick up. He's like, all right, the next time I crash, I'm done. And then he'd crash again. And then he'd just keep doing that. And then he came upon this camp. It's like these guys out there just spectating. And they, you know, the local guys that had set out their rugs and they were having tea. And he rolled up and he's freezing cold because he's sweating so much. And so he stops. He's getting warmed up and he's out of water. So they're offering him stuff. And, uh, he drinks eight cups of chai. And I think if you drink just one <laughs> cup of chai, you'll be up for about five days. And he drank eight cups. And finally, he like the guys were almost trying to force him to stay there. Like, look, man, you shouldn't go back out. He's like, no, I have to finish. Like, like there's no other option. I have to finish. I have to continue. Dang. So he got back up and he finished the stage. And then when he came in that night, he had hypothermia because of all the sweat. And then he was on the liaison. And so they made him, they forced him to sleep in the medical tent so he could warm up. And he could, he was, you know, shaking uncontrollably. So he slept in the medical tent, woke up the next morning, started the next stage. And then he finished that stage in the dark. It turned out the finish of that uh, special was actually the start of the next one. So he just finished that one and slept there. At the finish of that special, woke up the next morning, refilled his bike, and started the next one. Like the, the <laughs> it's insane the the amount of stories that he has. He's like, oh yeah, you know, I just oh, it was incredible. And he came into the finish, held up his medal, and we're like, dude, this is more inspiring than anything I've ever seen. The fact this dude made wow. it to the finish line is incredible, and he was so stoked on it. And he did it, Molly Moto. So, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, yeah, he's coming in after 17 hours of racing a, a, a stage and roughly 20 hours on the bike or something and then has to work on his bike, gets an hour and a half of sleep, gets up the next morning and has to start the stage. Like, dude. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that's his race. Yeah, for real. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like whoever should get the trophy is the dude who has to work the hard, hardest to, to, fin- yeah. to fin- or there should be a special award for that. Is there a special award for that? Like, you know, like a guy or a girl is just, they just, they just muscle the shit out and you're like, we don't even believe you're here. And here's an award for that. You know what I mean? I mean, the Dakar doesn't award you if you do poorly. Like, it, they don't even really award you if you do well. They don't award you. <laughs> you get the same meta. They're just get, here's your medal. Yeah, you know. Know. Like, like, you know, the door hit your ass on the way out. <laughs> but like, the work that you do, they punish you for it. Like, if you're if you're not like proficient, they make sure you know it, and then they and they just like kick you while you're down. Yeah, that guy, that guy had to walk 20 minutes to go pee every day. That's that's the... He peed in his pants. There's no way to go. Why? why? <laughs> like, he's like, pee in pants, eat a granola bar, stare into space for about five seconds, and then 
go back on the bike and ride again. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's no doubt you hear stories like that and it's almost, you know, crazier than fiction, you know, that, that people actually have that much endurance and kind of like dedication. And it's not just a physical thing too. It's largely, you know, kind of like, you know, like emotional. And, you know, some of the, some of the scenes that touched me the most were unfortunately some of the most tragic. And that was where, you know, people had passed away. And to me, that's one of the big, you know, you hear about, you know, people getting into accidents in Formula One, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, all those are tragic. Like whenever anyone passes, it's tragic. You know, the only consolation I think we have as, as fans of the sport is that they, is, is that they pass doing what they love. You know what I mean? So I did kind of scrounge up a small video here. This is, uh, this is a short video from 2020 of, uh, Paulo Gonçalves. And there's, uh, and there's old Skyler there. He's, he's feeling it, but it's not just Skyler. Um, you know, there's a bunch of guys that are really feeling this. Um, you know, the loss of, uh, I mean, I don't know, Skylar, what would you say? I mean, do you guys kind of see yourselves as comrades, as brothers? You know, I mean, what is what is kind of going, you know, through everybody's head right here when something like this happens, you know? Well, that was especially difficult. I mean, I have dealt with the loss of, of friends racing and, you know, Kurt Caselli being one of them. And then yeah. uh, Paulo, I wasn't uh, necessarily super close with him on a personal level, but we were, we're all friends out there. Like I was saying earlier, you see this year when Toby crashed, Ricky yeah. and Sam don't hesitate to stop. It's to say, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what place you're in, what place you have a chance at finishing. You, you, you stop for everyone. We're, we're all we got out there. You know, if, if we don't stop, who's going to, and it could be that split second that could make a difference. And, you know, when Paulo crashed, I was the third rider on him. Toby was the first, Stefan, and then myself. And Toby and Stefan had stopped. And when I came up, I, you know, hey, what can I do to help? And they said, just go. Just don't even stop. Just go. We got it. We got it handled. Helicopter's already landing. And uh, it's something that's going to be, you know, burned in my mind forever. I I remember it like it was yesterday. And it's something that I won't ever forget because it really hit home the the fact that someone like Paulo, who's a legend in the sport, um, he has finished so many Dakars and he's done well and he's won races and he's, you know, it's someone who's that good. And then someone like Kirk Selly, who's the best racer in the world. And both of them had things that happened that it wasn't necessarily their fault. You know, it's just something that happened. And there's something that's difficult to, to, understand about that like why why did it happen and then the other side of it like look these guys are the best in the world and someone like kurt who is the most fit the most prepared he 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 does the most amount of homework and he i mean literally is the best at his craft and then that's something that literally is just completely out of the control it's a weird way of looking at it but it's almost a, a sense of like calm that no matter how perfect you are at whatever you do, some things just happen. And there's nothing that you can really do to, to change that when it's time to punch your ticket. What do you do? There's not really a way to prepare for that. If you are, are, you know, if you've done your preparation, you're fit, you're healthy, you, you are doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're not taking unnecessary risks. I mean, dirt biking and off-road racing is, is dangerous inherently. And I 
you know, the organization and whoever, they're all in really difficult positions because they're like, oh, what can we do to make it safer? It's like, look, you can only do so much before you just wrap us in bubble wrap and then tell us not to go racing because it's too dangerous. We all know what we're signing up for. And it's, there's kind of that, um, it's hard to put it into words that because it's that dangerous, because that many sketchy things happen every single day, it almost makes the reward when something good happens that much sweeter. You know, we have these, these moments out there that every single day we're doing, you know, 160, 170 kilometers an hour and you clip a little tiny rock and you get kicked sideways and, you're, and you just have this moment run slow, oh, but you pulled out of it and you, you just, you know, you know, you, you never let off. You just keep going. And that happens a thousand times a day. And sometimes that one time where it just gets out of hand and you can't bring it back, that could be it. And that was what's so difficult, especially about Apollo was it wasn't an area that where you're like, yep, for sure. This is, yep, that, that's what did it. It was just something, it was something like that. Like it just got a hat. hat. Yeah. And that's what's, man, that was what was really difficult about it. If you remember like the TV coverage, everyone and, and Petter Hansel said it specifically, like, what are we doing out here? You know, if, if we're pushing this hard for, like Justin said, okay, yeah, it doesn't matter if you win or lose or whatever. Everyone gets the same medal. You know, you're not really out there. It, it's out for your own personal glory at the end of the day. And that's something that's really helped me out mentality, mentally wise is, yeah, if I come in and I finish 20th on the day, it is what it is. You know, if I go out there and I start pushing beyond my limits, something bad could happen. And then at the end of the day, what do you get out of that? You know, you're out there for your own personal glory. And if you're having fun and you're enjoying what you're doing and you're racing to the best of your ability, that's what matters. And if you're doing it for any other reason, you shouldn't be doing it. And I think there's a lot of aspect now to professional racing where people put themselves in mentalities and stuff that can really, you know, mess them up and, and, and cause injuries, which would cause, you know, problems for everyone else racing. So it's, it's really, really tough situation to be in to be like, all right, you know, with, with Kurt passing away, the way it all happened, the way it led up, it was almost in a weird way saying it was like it was supposed to happen. You know, the foundation that, that they started in, in his name has created a lot of good things and a lot of changes to make things safer. And, um, you know, Dakar's for being such an incredibly dangerous race is actually really safe. I mean, the, the, the response time for, for emergencies is insanely fast considering we're in the middle of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do. So when you have, I don't know, when you have guys and girls go, going hundreds of miles an hour out there on their dirt bike, I don't know. It, it, like I said, it, some things just happen and, and tough to find the mentality to accept that because, you know, for me, I love racing dirt bikes and, I've said it once before that racing dirt bikes and off-road is one of the most selfish things you could possibly do because you understand that and yet you still choose to go out there and do this. And it's, it's a personal, personal thing. You're not going out there racing with, you know, six people strapped to your back. You're out there on your bike alone against the elements and you know that anything like this can happen, yet you still choose to go do that. And with everything else that you got going on back home, it's, it's, you know, pretty selfish to do, but man, the, the, 
the feeling is something that you can't describe to anyone. You know, to, to finish an event like this, someone like James who just raced 133 hours, he raced whatever, 70 hours longer than, than, than Avides. And to be able to finish that and, and, and check that off as an accomplishment, I finished the Dakar rally, you know, and, and I, I rode twice three times as long as anyone else. And, and it was an incredible struggle and things like that. Like, how do you, you can't even put that into words, what type of feeling he had when he finished. And with me, you know, growing up in a small town and, and having to dumpster dive for tires and, and run duct tape numbers and hand me down gear to be able to come to the Dakar rally on a proper bike on a proper team and then finish in the top five overall as an elite racer. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I don't know how to describe that feeling to anyone and to show people like, Hey, this is why we do it. You yeah. know, that this is, it, it's something that's pretty wild. So yeah, I, I mean, this year, unfortunately we had another, uh, a death, uh, with someone in the Moto Mali class. And, and I think if you look at the statistics, it, is like everyone every year there's at least one tragedy and it's so gnarly to to see that but you know this year i don't know it like crashes sometimes crashes just happen and you know like toby when he was racing i don't think it had anything specifically to do with you know anything else other than you know you're six inches too far to the left and you clip a rock you know, it's happened to me half a dozen different times. It happened to me in the States uh, last September. And I raced for 500 miles and literally 14 miles from the finish. I was one inch too far to the left to clip a rock and, you know, got a concussion. So it's one of those things that you, you can do everything right. You can do everything right for eight hours. And then one tiny little thing where you either lose focus or you're just, you can't see and, you know, one thing is wrong. Sometimes things just happen. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that's really tough on all of us and makes you really do, like think about why we're doing this. But, you know, like I said, to, to some, describe to someone the feeling of the, the accomplishment and reaching goals, you know, the, the reaction from Laya this year, she has Lyme's disease. And she finished the Dakar and it was a really, really gnarly one this year. It was really tough. She finished it and she did really well. And to see her reaction of like that accomplishment is, you know, I, yeah. She's 11 for 11, man. What, that's incredible. What an amazing <laughs> record, man. What an yeah. amazing record. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's totally well. You know, I was really interested when you, when you were talking about just to rewind for a second about, you know, the idea that, you know, this kind of racing is, is selfish. You know what I mean? And, and, and actually what I found over the past 10, 11 years of, of, you know, of, you know, putting on ADV Moto is the whole concept of adventure in essence is selfish. Whether you're, whether you're, uh, you know, you're traveling around the world or it's your first trip around the United States and it's going to take you a few weeks or a month or something like that, you're leaving something. You know what I mean? Uh, a family, friends, something else. They're going to worry about you, all that kind of stuff, but you do it anyway because you have a sense of uh, purpose or kind of mission in your life, you know, that you're looking for a new experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that that ties everyone together. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and that I think is the heart of adventure, you know? Mm-hmm. So how does someone know, man, uh, trying to lighten it up a little bit here, sorry. <laughs> you know, so, so how does someone know if they are kind of like Dakar material? You know what I mean? You know, like as a racer, you know what I mean? Like, 
as an elite racer? Just just someone who's going to be like, yo, I'm going to go into international, you know, like rally racing, you know, whether it's in, you know, we're going to start off in, you know, like like Sonora or something. And I mean, how does how does someone know that they that they that they are the right personality or they have have the right situation or they've got what it takes to really, you know, want to be a part of something like this? How do you know unless you try? I would think. Well, maybe yeah. <clears throat> make sure you can find your way home from the bar at night. That's yeah, good, if, good you can, if you can read symbols. If you're not blind <laughs> and you can technically uh, captain some sort of machine that is allowed in a rally race, you're like two steps ahead. I mean, if you look at, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. Is it James? The guy from Botswana. I mean, you can't, if you're racing like literally three times as long as everyone else, if you had told, you know, if you had examined that guy before he decided to enter Dakar, maybe if there was some sort of level of qualification, he might not have qualified. But the fact that he just chose to do it, I mean, how can you gauge mental strength when you haven't tested yourself? So mental strength, I think, is the most powerful tool you have in a rally raid versus, for instance, where you need more skill and speed in desert racing or enduro. And so, I mean, I, I, wouldn't know because I haven't raced. So, but I think that I would, I will never know until I go and try something. Skylar, do you think there's any way for someone to know if they, if they have the fire or is it really just kind of something you fall into? Or is it something that you could say, if I hadn't been somewhere at some point in time with this person talking to me or explaining it to me, I never would have done it. Yeah. I, I think everyone should experience if they love racing and off-road racing in general, there's a lot of people that race you know, on tracks and things that I think just, they just wouldn't enjoy it. I mean, it, like Kira said earlier, it's, you, you have to be kind of a masochist and just enjoy the struggle and enjoy having just a gnarly thing you have to, uh, to accomplish because, uh, yeah, I, you have to be able to have the mental capacity to inevitably you're going to have an issue, mechanical crash, navigation, something's going to happen that you have to figure out. So you have to have the mental ca- capability of, okay, this happened. I need to figure it out without losing your mind. And then, yeah, you got to be able to ride or drive something. You have to be able to have a sense of direction. If you go out in fr- in, in your house and you have no idea which way you're pointing, whether it's north, north, south, east or west, east or west, you probably should figure that out before you want to race a rally. You need to be <laughs> coherent with directions. But, uh, yeah, I, I think anyone who loves in off-road racing or enduro would probably like to do rally. And the thing with North America specifically is it's not really readily available for everyone. So I hope that changes now that we have a lot more Americans, uh, Ricky, myself, Andrew, uh, a lot of people in the side-by-sides, uh, getting more involved with it that, that changes. So if someone goes, Hey, if I'm interested and I want to get the equipment and the road books, how do I start? And that will give everyone a little bit more of an idea of if this is right for me, if they go out there and they go, ah, I, I just, I don't have it. I can't, I couldn't even make it three corners in or, or three notes in. Then they figure out that, okay, maybe I need to stick with, stick with a GPS route or I need to stick with this type of racing or just riding in general. But if they go out there and like, man, this is really fun. I'm clicking with it. Then they can do a race like Sonora and then they can go do a race like, you know, Morocco and, 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 uh, get their qualifications done 
and then go and try Dakar. I mean, Dakar isn't something that you just decide, oh, yeah, you know what? I've raced a, a few, a handful of desert races in my life. I'm going to go race Dakar. It's not that's you, <laughs> you're in way over your head. You're not even jumping into the pool at that point. You're jumping into the deepest part of the ocean. So it's like, it, it's definitely something because I even had some experience. I had training and I had two races under my belt that I won. And then I went to Dakar in Peru and I was in way over my head. I had no idea what to expect. I thought I had it all under control. And then I started the first stage and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have to have some, uh, you know, some, some training and things. And I think that's what Americans get in trouble with is they think that, Oh, I've had some success over here. I'm going to go to Dakar and I'm going to have, and I'm going to kill it. I had the same problem. Like, Oh, I've already won two rallies. I'm going to go to Dakar. I'm going to do really well. And not just Americans specifically, a lot of people have the expectation to be like, ah, oh, I've won a bunch of races my day, I'll go to Dakar and I'll do well. And then, you know, Dakar just has a way of just, nope, just slapping <laughs> you in the face. So, down. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, Dakar is just, a, it, it, it's an incredible challenge. But to figure out if you have the stuff to be a rally rider or racer, it just takes time. You, nobody is, is going to put a roadbook in front of your face and you, and you go do it perfectly. Like there's going to be mistakes that are going to be made. You have to have some type of experience. And a lot of other people look at the cost, but essentially if you race a desert race, it's going to cost you like what? A couple hundred bucks. Well, if you look at rally and they look at the entry fee, that's thousands of dollars. All right. Well, subtract, divide that by how many days you're racing. You're essentially doing six to 14 desert races in a row. So people have a problem with looking at the cost. Oh man, I, I don't know if I could do this, but actually when you subtract everything and work it all out, it's really not that expensive. And for your bang for your buck, I think it's the best type of racing. Wow. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, uh, on the, on the cost topic, you know, you've, you've, you've really had to hustle to make this to make this happen, you know, I mean, what is what is someone looking at in terms of being able to run it? And let's just say the Dakar, not not counting all the other stuff you have to do to build up to it and everything like that. But you know, like if if someone did build up to it and there was time for them to qualify as a privateer, especially, how do you how do you do that? I mean, how do you how do you get the funds for it? Or or you, know, you got to go knocking on doors or or what? Skyler's actually living. That's actually a cardboard box that he's in. Yeah, because he's, <laughs> he sold everything he owned so that he could go ride right yeah. Dakar. He rode Why his bicycle a- to the airport and back. <laughs> so, do you have a truck? Yeah, he's selling it though. I, he, yes, I saw it on. I saw it already. On no, the other, the new truck. Oh, yeah. He's just, yeah. Gotta- no, I, I am. I came back and I celebrated a little early, a little prematurely. So I'm doing the hot air balloon thing too. So I, I, I kind of like working myself into a, a different career where I don't have to sit, stand behind a machine every day and just press buttons and whatnot. Anyways, off talk, off topic, but oh, that's cool. That's cool. More or less. It's kind of weird the way it works out. No matter how you crunch the numbers of doing a privateer motorcycle effort, it always works out to about a hundred, a hundred thousand dollars. Like no matter which way you try to do it, unless you're really cutting corners. And that's the biggest thing too, is people really try to budget when they do this, which they shouldn't. I mean, when it's 20 grand just to enter at that point, you should just realize like, all right, listen, if it's 20 grand just to get here, don't step over dollars to pick up pennies at that point, spend the money, do the right team, you know, just get the right equipment, replace the parts when it's supposed to 
yeah, and, and just do it the right way because you'll think yourself in, in, in the long run. I've done it on a budget before and it's tough. And then to do it this year where I just, I was like, all right, listen, I struggled. I had a lot of, you know, issues in the past. This year, I'm just going to spend the money. I'm going to, you know, this is what it's going to cost and this is what it's going to take to get here. I'm going to sell a crap ton of t-shirts, do a bunch of fundraising. And unfortunately, looks like I'm going to have to sell every single one of my motorcycles. And so that's what it was going to take. And so that's what and I that's did. That's for next year, you're saying? No, 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 no. That was for this year. That was to, that was to make this Dakar happen. Oh, wow. Okay. That's yeah. why he's going to okay. now because he sold everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So <laughs> is it, is it, calendar. <laughs> is it too early to ask about next year? You know, like assuming that you don't get picked up by a team or something like that, you know, like it, would you be hard charging for that again? I mean, would you? Yeah, I can't, I couldn't do it again. I have nothing left to sell. <laughs> so uh, I have, if I'm on my own again, I have kind of worked my uh, resume into a good enough position to where I could probably figure it out. But I mean, this took half of the year of doing nothing but just stressing my eyeballs out, figuring out how I was even going to make it to the race. So I was fortunate enough that I, I, you know, I, I was smart enough to put some contingencies in place. So when I came home, I didn't come home to nothing. You know, I'm able to kind of rebuild my life and, and, and I'm not just stuck on my bicycle pedaling around and I'm able to pay rent in the place that I live. So yeah, I, I, I wasn't, uh, completely foolish enough to just sell everything and then not have anything to fall back on when I came home and I'm just stuck out on the streets. So uh, I'm happy there, but like right now I'm borrowing my friend's dirt bike to ride. So, <laughs> and it's really funny. I think it's funny. I'm doing a, a, a video shoot this year for the local or, or this weekend for the local news station. <laughs> and I have to borrow a motorcycle to do it. They're like, Oh, you finished fifth in the biggest race ever. Bring your and bike. On a, yeah. Like- <laughs> he literally, he's like, Oh, bring your bike. We're going to, sh- we're going to shoot some footage. And I'm like, uh, I don't have one. I'm going to have to borrow one from a friend. So. Well, well, Hey man, if that's not grassroots, I don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For real. But I, I am. I have my high, my hopes set high, so I'll be able to do a couple more races like Sonora. Um, I do a handful of races in in USA, the best in desert races like Vegas Torino and the Silver State 300, which is just really good training because they're long days on the bike. Um, and I, I think they're really fun. So I want to do Sonora, um, best in desert. Um, and then if the opportunity presents itself, I'd really want to go and do Silkway. Uh, just because I think that'd be insane to race through Kazakhstan and China and Russia. There. <laughs> yeah, you guys went. Yeah, yeah we're going to go this year. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. So I really want to go and do that. Hopefully, uh, things pan out and I can uh, end up doing that. And then I am crossing my fingers that I have another cool opportunity to drive some four wheeled race cars, uh, in the near future too. So I think that would be really, really fun. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to have, uh, a sponsor that has a, a UTV, a racing UTV that I got to race a few months ago and I won that my very first ever pro race in a UTV. So it was pretty cool. So I really want to try and do a little bit more work in the four wheel stuff, but I can't afford it. So I need someone. <laughs> like, That's even more expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If anyone needs a driver, <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Hey, you know, uh, we have a couple questions from, from the chat room and then, and then we got to probably try to start to wrap up. It's 
It's uh, it's been a little bit here already, but uh, so Yamaha T Dub Club says, if you, if you don't mind us asking, what is your day job? So my day job, I I'll just go through my history. I started out working at a swimming pool, and I was a lifeguard for nine and a half years, and then I worked double job with Fast Company Flex Handlebars. I quit both of those jobs to try and do racing full time, and I quickly figured out that that's not sustainable. <laughs> so. I started working for uh, just a local small CNC machine shop. Uh, I was working there for a little bit, but that machine shop actually just sold all of their Haas machines to Fast Company. And so indirectly, we were actually making parts for the Flex Hannibars. And But now uh, what I'm actually trying to do now is put a lot more effort into getting my commercial pilot's licensing license for hot air balloons. So putting a little bit more effort into that and trying to do a... a, a proper, you know, self-employed business as a hot air balloon pilot. It's kind of random. He's going to be racing hot air balloons now, everybody. You heard it first first here. (laughs) He starts the first rally hot air balloon racing. I know that they're hot air balloons. Like events. But but is there racing? Like straight up racing? Yeah. Oh, that's too cool, man. I hadn't even heard about that before, but that's just... They even call it a hare and hound. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Hot air and hound. <laughs> that is your soundboard drum roll for that one. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. Yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, that is. You know, that's that's totally awesome. And it just goes to show, also, you know, a lot of motorcyclists. You know, we're not all just two wheelheads. We do a lot of other things in our lives. You know, we have a lot of other different interests and, and, and passions too. You know, I mean, and hell, if you're crazy about one thing, might as well be crazy about something else too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, uh, so I take it that you don't have, you know, like a manager or anything that helps you do all the fundraising or anything. I mean, it's just all you, right? Yeah. And that's one thing that I'm actually running into a problem right now. Uh, My buddy realized that there could be a potential to sell a lot more t-shirts with, you know, the, the publicity and stuff going on during Dakar. So I gave him my login information for my website and he just opened up all of my stock. So I was actually out of stock of everything and he's like, nah, we have unlimited everything. Order it all. So I sold. <laughs> I'm not even joking. There's like 200 orders that I'm like sitting here trying to figure out all the stock that I need to, you know, get ordered and all that kind of stuff. And people are emailing me like, hey, where's my t-shirts? And I'm like, dude, I'm trying to figure it out. I do everything on my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I essentially do all of, I figure out all of the, the, my own sponsorships and fundraising and do everything and kind of, I have a lot of people that help me out behind the scenes. You know, there's my family and friends help me out with like my fundraisers. They ran, you know, collecting money and things like that, but essentially putting it all together is on me. Yeah. Well, you know, this is one of these things where, and I wish it was different in the United States in Europe, you get all kinds of companies that help come out and support this stuff. You know, you've got guys like Telefonica, you know, and all these, you know what I mean? You got, you got IT companies and you know, Xerox is on Formula Ones and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. HP, you know what I mean? And it's just like, I really wish we had some of that outside industry support for that. I got a banana, but, um, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, I mean, really it's like, you know, and that was the thing that kind of frustrated me when I came back to America in 2008 after living and writing in, in China and stuff, it was just kind of like, yo man, you know, these are amazing stories. People are doing amazing things. I mean, like mythological scales, what I always say, you know, like you couldn't even write a better story about how much people are really putting themselves out there and the depths of the valleys and the mountains that they have to move at the same time. But there was just no interest. You know what I mean? I was just, I was just like, you've got to be, you know what I mean? 
there there's a real story there even even if it's just for entertainment alone there has to be some some value either it's inspiring people or educating people or whatever it is you know i mean it's just a it's just a something that i wish was different in in the u.s in terms of how we saw uh you know kind of like our motorsports in 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 general and i and i really hope that we get a, a lot more you know kind of larger mainstream media that, that comes in and kind of recognizes that um, because it would be very hard for that to happen unless they do it too like it's done in the rest of the world you know yeah it needs to be made like sexy you know make a vi- or make a movie write a book do something like get brad pitt to race something oh I don't have that plugged into my machine. <laughs> anyway, anyway, all right. Well, tell you what, uh, it's been awesome. I just want to give you guys a, a chance to give a shout out to peeps that have helped all three of you along the way, and then we'll do our last, uh, our last canned, canned question. Skylar or uh, Kira, Justin, you guys want to go first? We're doing. Shout outs. Yeah, shout uh, outs. I mean Scott Bright, one hundred percent. Scott Bright, Ned Cease. We wouldn't be sitting here if, if without them if they didn't make a phone call. To us, Scotty, Scotty Broman, Scotty Bloom, and Mao. I mean, they yeah, they got us into the North American rally scene. Uh, Darren Skilton yep. has really supported us and has put together a really great thing with Sonora Rally, and yep. so we're really happy to be a part of that as well. Skyler, that guy right Skyler, there. Skyler. I mean, uh, I mean, we followed him to Peru. So if he wasn't racing, we would have nobody to take pictures of. Yeah, I, I spent <laughs> like a whole year taking pictures of that guy. I got more pictures of him than I do anyone else I know. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I got all kinds. <laughs> Camera hogs. Yeah, that's. I mean, there's a I lot. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. Polaris is this year was really supportive of us and brought us to Dakar this year, so they're a huge help. And they're doing another big thing, actually. Just. To side plug their UTVs, uh, but they're the first American factory team to go to Dakar. So that was a big step and hopefully might pave the way for other OEMs out here and American based teams to come out to. I actually, I think another person that doesn't in the, in the rally space, I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy Lewis is a huge proponent of North American rally racing as is Quinn Cody. Quinn's with KTM now. Obviously Johnny Campbell, because he's, you know, he's really behind Ricky and and his rally efforts. But Quinn's, Quinn's pushing, Quinn organized in 2016 when the The first first year year Ricky went. Yeah. Quinn organized like a, like a, like a North Americans in, in Dakar event out in, out in the desert. Mm -hmm. And it kind of introduced journalists and, and other racers to, Reading road books, yeah, road books and, and, and trying to like test out their skills in in a small cool. course and things. Yeah, like I think that. I think Quinn doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. He's he's been a huge proponent of yeah of rally here in in North America and and yeah, in, in the world getting getting what? Americans to Dakar. Well, that's there cool. Is, you know, we should shine some light on that then. Yeah, yeah. there's a yeah. there's a ton of people who who put more effort and passion into or effort into this passion than they get probably back at least in in a tangible sense and and all of them deserve credit and all of them contribute to the growth i think of well that sounds like the motorcycle industry to me (laughs) we're we're all doing it largely um, because we we love it and we love the people that we get to work with (laughs) skylar what you think yeah i agree i mean every single person that they have mentioned has been a part of my program and helped me out even if it was indirectly and this year specifically i had like you said, the motorcycle industry, I think it had a little bit to do with last year, Ricky winning, myself finishing in the top 10. 
um, and Andrew finishing. I mean, we had three Americans in the top 10, which is really, really cool. And so I think it got a lot more uh, interest in people. And this year, it was either going to take one company to step up and give me $50,000 or a lot of people to come together and buy a t-shirt, which is exactly what happened. I mean, there's so many people that supported me and I did something different this year. I had the SH squad. So instead of just doing, oh, hey, you know, I'm just going to do like a donation thing. If you do donate to my effort, I'll put your name, your first and last name on my, on my bike. And that was something that helped out a ton. A lot of people were really stoked about that to see. And I was fortunate enough that they actually featured that on television. So people got to see their name on my bike on the TV, which is really, really cool. And so, yeah, there's so many people that came together for that, that bought a t-shirt that came to my, uh, my fundraiser and bought raffle tickets or whatever. And, and, uh, and then I had sponsors that have been with me since, 2014 that have, you know, stepped up and helped me. And then I had three or four different companies out of Holland that step up to help me like boss trucks. They, they helped me out a ton. And Bart Van de Velden with, with the, the boss Dakar team, he, he did a lot of work for me this year to make sure I had the proper equipment and just, you know, making sure, making sure everything was done properly. Uh, him and Leon and, uh, Bart and Nelson are, were such a huge, you know, component of the, how this Dakar went for me. And, you know, everyone, all the, the small shops that helped me, there's a tiny little coffee shop out of New York that stepped up and they made like a Skylar House roast and sold those bags for 10 bucks. And they gave me five bucks out of all those bags. And I, I think they said they, their online sales had never been so high since all of like the motorcycle community coming together and buying coffee. And it was really, really cool to see that, to see how many people were just stoked to help out. And I wouldn't have been able to go without those people. And there's a lot of different small companies, you know, locally. There's a, a, a spa up, up in Northern Utah, Summit Spa and Float that helped me out. And just a handful, there, a Canadian company, a home building company that, that sponsored me, a shoe company. And just there's a bunch of, like really small companies that just were stoked to have their logo on my bike that just helped out a ton. And without those people, it was, it wouldn't have been possible. So thanks to all of them. Thanks to everyone that they mentioned for being a part of my program to Garrett for getting me more or less started in all of it. And then, uh, he's going to kill me for even mentioning his name, but Mike Holcomb, he's the uh, Lake Powell off road guy. He has been such a huge, I, I, I consider his family my family. And he's got two daughters that I consider my little sisters. And I legitimately would not be racing without him. There's been so many really difficult times that I just I, I couldn't have been able to go racing if it wasn't for him. I would have I would have stopped. I would have had to stop. There would have been no other option if it wasn't for him. And, you know, obviously my parents have stood behind me and, and dealt with all the stress of me just being in a foreign country and they don't hear from me from for like two days and they're like, uh, are you fine? I'm like, yeah, all good. I just almost ran into three camels and like, you know, whatever. So <laughs> they're you know, there's so many people that, that have been a part of my program and literally people from way back in the day that I remember that didn't have the money to help out and wrote me a check for a hundred bucks because they believed in me. And it's really, really satisfying for me to, to have a result like this. I still don't feel like I could ever repay them, but to have a result like this, to follow and chase my dream and to be able to accomplish something great makes me feel 
uh, good and, and, and satisfied a little bit. Um, like I said, I, I, <laughs> part of me wants to repay them in some way, but, uh, yeah, I mean, thanks. Thanks to Justin and Kira for, for always taking pictures and bugging, you know, I, I bugged the crap out of them because I just, Kira's on me like, Hey, uh, I need quotes and you're three days late. <laughs> So thanks for dealing with me because I'm a, I'm a scatterbrain constantly. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. what is that? What is that line from a that Jim Carrey show? Uh, behind every great man, there's a great woman rolling her eyes. We were just talking about the eye rolls. <laughs> yeah. we, were, we were just talking about the eye rolls. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, last thing, guys, uh, it has been absolutely wonderful. But uh, any last word of advice for people getting into adventure riding and racing? Kieran, Justin, you guys have already answered this. So we'll just. We'll just point this one over over at Skylar and uh, and what do you think, man? Last word of advice for people getting into adventure riding and racing. <sighs> be passionate about it. Don't do it for the wrong reasons. Do it because you want to do it and you enjoy riding your motorcycle and you enjoy the inv- adventure. And enjoy every aspect of it. The good, the bad. You can't have good without the bad because bad makes the good that much sweeter so enjoy every single part of it and just have fun riding motorcycles or whatever you're whatever you're driving or riding just have fun with it because that's what it was intended for and uh do it with friends because that's even more fun (laughs) awesome awesome well tell you what guys uh it has been a really wonderful interview it's 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 gone over uh, longer than we usually do but you know what i think it's been it's been worth it you guys have just been awesome skylar you know big heartfelt man out of the risks of the experiences you know you're right it's not something anyone can understand unless unless they've been there and i have a profound amount of respect for that yeah okay well all right guys um hang on to the line uh um, after the closing we will do a uh a a quick closeout okay yes sir all right Thanks again to uh, Skylar, uh, Kira, and Justin for sharing their experiences with us tonight. Covering the event is a gigantic feather in any photographer's cap. And, uh, you know, combined, uh, they are a super passionate team who I'm happy to work with. Uh, anyone who's, you know, part of the Dakar caravan has crazy stories to tell. Whether you're racing or you're part of the support or media, the struggles for uh, racers to qualify or generate the enough money or funding to actually make it as a privateer is, I mean, as we've all kind of heard, it's, it's, it's truly amazing. Um, and that's not even considering all the effort that you have to put forth to complete the race. So on any human scale, you know, these are great stories of, of people being committed, uh, overcoming sacrifice, tragedy, triumph, camaraderie, uh, and they deserve to be told the stories of life and death and Dakar. So, everyone, please check out SkylarHouse.com and consider hitting the donate button. Mash the crap out of that donate button, please, to help ensure the dream goes on. Skylar has given up a lot to follow his passion, and every tank of gas helps, especially the more uh, all of us pitch in. Uh, ADV Moto is also happy to throw in some gas money as well. So, next show, please join us next month on ADV Moto Live, number 23 for Turtle Power, T-Dub Love, we're going to talk about Yamaha's m- beloved TW200, uh, Rodney Wills of T-Dubs Club, who is in the chat room tonight, and Wes Matthias, a.k.a. T-Dubs Kid, who also has a channel over here on YouTube, uh, will join us to talk about this iconic little dual sport that has captured so many large hearts. Your support means a lot and keeps the motorcycle world running. Please let us know what you'd like to see on the show in the comments below, and don't forget to mash that subscribe and follow as a little bit of a 
Dr. Seuss rhyme going on there. As always, visit VentureMotorcycle.com for more stories, news, reviews, videos, podcasts, and more. Until next time, everyone, from everyone here at Edimoto, ride safe and have fun. Wow. Wow.